LiveFlow saves me 14 hours a month. Terrell Turner, TL Turner Group. LiveFlow saves me two working days a month. Michael Alleman, Alleman Business Group. We're saving over 15 hours a month using LiveFlow. Marissa Stillwell, Bookkeep. LiveFlow has given us the gift of time back. Sarah Jones, Ascent CFO. Stay tuned to hear more from our sponsor LiveFlow later in the episode. If you'd like to earn CPE credit for listening to this episode, visit earmarkcpe.com. Download the app, take a short quiz, and get your CPE certificate. Continuing education has never been so easy. And now, on to the episode. This is Oh My Fraud, a true crime podcast where the crazies slash prices instead of people. I'm Caleb Newquist. And I'm Crazy Greg Kite. Crazy Greg, you're older than me. Yeah. <laughs> Barely. Like a week. Maybe two weeks. Maybe a decade. Somewhere around there. About 200 a little weeks? Bit older. Maybe about 200 weeks. But maybe possibly 240 weeks older than okay. you. Yeah. But not much. But not much older. So, like, to explain... I grew up in the 80s, but I don't really remember them. You know, I remember I remember the presidential election in 1988, but I don't remember. Uh, oh, I remember. I, oh, God, this is awful. But I, I remember the Challenger exploding. I remember oh, that. Gotcha. Yeah, that's a, <laughs> I mean, that's a traumatic thing for 80s kids. Uh-huh, uh-huh. But like, what do you yeah. remember about? Do you remember the 80s well? Yeah, absolutely. I, so I, I, the eighties was really, yeah, I was born in the seventies, but I was a child. So I, I actually, I graduated in 1990. So the eighties really, if you think about it, that was my decade. So yeah, I remember, uh, I, if you want to talk about presidents, I do remember when Ronald Reagan was, uh, elected in 1980. Okay. Uh, I remember that. Uh, so yeah, so the whole thing, I, I remember, um, you know the i guess hip hop really began b- technically before the 80s but i remember yep. that catching steam and even in high school i had a buddy who was like we're th- he <laughs> he pulled me aside and was like we're the last we're the last class to know rock and roll and i'm like are we uh but but that was his he he felt like he felt like run dmc was going to was going to trample out uh you know the scorpions uh, to a thing of the past. So oh. yeah, yeah, I remember the eighties. Right. I remember the neon colors. You know, nice. it's all it's all there. Nice. And you grew up on the West Coast. For people who don't know. Yep. I'm a I'm a West Coast uh West Coast boy. Mount Lake Terrace, Washington, right? Mount Lake Terrace, Washington, north <laughs> just north of Seattle. Uh, a little bit north of Seattle. That's where I grew up. That's home for me. Right. Okay, uh cool. So do you remember any local television commercials from your youth? Anything that stands out, like a plumber or a mattress company or personal personal injury attorney i it's so funny because i absolutely do remember there being a some a, a vendor of some sort of product that had the ubiquitous annoying advertisements that everybody knew and everybody kind of you know you could insert it into a conversation and everybody knew who you were talking about and was like oh that guy in his dumb commercial the funny thing is i can't remember the name i can't even remember what he was selling i'm thinking maybe furniture but i'm likely 
wrong with that, but everybody knew him. Nobody liked him, <laughs> but apparently his commercials worked. And it's funny because one thing I do remember is I remember talking to my mom because I was young enough yeah. that I was like, mom, why would this guy pay money to, to put commercials where he's just an asshole? And my mom was like, because people remember that. And I'm like, oh, okay. And it broke your so brain. That's why I turned out... It broke my brain a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. Well, hopefully somebody, hopefully a listener from the Northwest uh, 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 recognizes this v- extremely vague description that you gave about <laughs> right. a product that you don't remember, a guy you don't remember, and like, oh, I know what right. he's talking about. <laughs> and they'll, and they'll, yeah. you and my they, they listener might. will be like, they might, because, yeah. Because, was it this guy? Yeah. Was it, it that? Was, him. was that the guy? Yeah, right. Okay, anyway, so amazing story, as always, Greg. Uh, I ask all these questions because today, uh, in this episode of the podcast, we're focusing on a business whose ads took the East Coast by storm in the late 70s and 80s, and I'm talking about Crazy Eddie. Crazy Eddie was an electronics retailer on the East Coast, and anyone our age, Greg, who grew up in that region that includes New York City, New Jersey, Long Island, even down to like Philadelphia. Um, uh, Dan Taylor, Professor Dan Taylor grew up in Delaware and he remembered Crazy Eddie commercials when I asked him about it on that episode of the podcast. Yeah. Everyone remembers Crazy Eddie. Yep. And so, and if you and if you don't know Crazy Eddie and you've never seen one of these commercials, please go to YouTube. <laughs> and just watch Crazy Eddie commercials for however long you need to because Which they're you amazing. did it. I did, yeah. You I, did this. I did do it. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. But they're amazing. They're amazing in terms of their... Uh, annoy- <laughs> their annoyance and kind of the the way that they they really like uh, grab you by the lapel figuratively. Uh, they The way they bash you over the head figuratively. Yeah. And they always ended with the slogan, Crazy Eddie's prices are insane. That they did. And what was behind all these insane prices, Greg? An insane fraud was behind them, Caleb. (laughs) Yeah, there was. (laughs) And uh, on the show today, we have a journalist who knows virtually every detail of it, Gary Weiss. Uh, Gary has a new book out. It's called Retail Gangster, The Insane Real life story of Crazy Eddie from Hatchet Books. It's uh, out now wherever you get books. And this was a great conversation, huh, Greg? It was fantastic. I loved it. Uh, it was great talking to Gary and it just, like you said, his encyclopedic knowledge of this case and about frauds in general and just getting to know about his personal history and how he got to uh, reporting on frauds. So without any further ado, let's get to it. Here's us talking with Gary Weiss. And that's where I started writing about business. Was there a, like a, a story? What, what, what would you consider like your first big business story? And I guess kind of follow up, was there like a first big fraud story that you got to cover that really blew your skirt up? Well, I didn't really write about fraud when I was, you know, starting out. I went to Barron's after a time. And I didn't really write about fraud then, you know. I, I in the in the book I uh, talk about a um, about a story that was written about the crazy Eddie IPO. It was a great story. It really sort of gave Eddie a lot of trouble because the reporter 
read the prospectus. Can you imagine reading a prospectus? The reporter read the prospectus and determined that this was a, what is this? What is this piece of shit that's coming out of, uh, pardon my French. <laughs> you can curse. That's fine. What is going on? What is going on at this crazy Yeti? Well, I was at Barron's when that, I believe I was at Barron's when that, when that article came came out, but I had nothing to do with it. I was I don't know, I was assigned to like beginner type stuff, like writing about I don't remember, like writing about little companies. You know, Barron's stories were either favorable or unfavorable. You know, that was determined by the editor. We'll do a favorable, we'll do an unfavorable story. I was assigned generally favorable stories. I was assigned unfavorable stories. If you were assigned to favorable stories and it turned out to be unfavorable, oh, this was not what they wanted. I actually remember uh, going out to a. A land, a cattle and land company out in New Mexico. Great trip. My my first exposure to New Mexico. I love New Mexico. I mean, that was the main thing. That was the only thing I got out of that trip. I didn't got no story. See, I determined that this company is called Oppenheimer Industries. This was a piece of garbage. It's selling land <laughs> to people without water rights. You can't do it. What are you doing? What the hell is going on? You can't do it. So I, I turned in this rather negative story. And no, 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 no. You, can, you can't do it. What are you talking about? This is a great, this is a great company. No? So they didn't run it. I went out to New Mexico for nothing, but I really like New Mexico, and I've been back a bunch of times. That's all I got out of it. So that was like a, a sort of an abortive fraud piece. The company that I wrote about, I wouldn't exactly say it was fraudulent, but it was really on the up and up, as we used mm -hmm. to say. Uh, I really only started writing about fraud after I got a Barron's. I got out of Barron's when I was at Business Week. And then I would say, this was in the 80s sometime, late 80s. Uh, then I started writing about chicanery on, uh, on Wall Street, you know, um, schemes and penny stocks and all that kind of stuff. It's a long way of getting like, to that, but that's, you know, where I finally arrived kind of at, at Business Week. Yeah, so penny stocks, when nowadays when somebody mentions penny stocks, you're talking like Wolf of Wall Street yeah. kind of era, that, that sort of boiler room tactics selling, you know, selling the sky, promising promising the moon and selling them a piece yeah, of shit. Yeah, that kind of thing. I remember one story, I did, one of the earlier stories I did, I remember was about a, a company called Sequential Information Systems. Which had like twenty thousand shareholders. I, I was really stunned by the fact that twenty thousand shareholders was selling for like a one twentieth of a cent. You know, this to me, and it, 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 this mm. to me was really very interesting. And it was still exists in existence. And I did a story on this company, and it was actually quite an interesting uh, story. That was, I think, possibly might have been my, well, was certainly one of my first stories on on fraud. Uh, I think the the CEO went to prison. I, I don't quote me on that. I'm not sure, but anyway, that was a uh, that stands out in my mind as a really interesting fraud type sleaze type story another was actually um about how um major brokerages charles schwab and donaldson lufkin and jenrette uh how they were engaged in these sort of weird profit slimy profit making schemes in the back offices which i'm not going to describe it's very boring and it's very esoteric but nevertheless they were doing something really sort of crummy in the back offices their reorganization departments were doing this. And don't ask me to explain to you what a reorganization department is. Um, so that was like my first sort of big negative story on a Wall Street firm. And that was 1989, 1990. It seems a very long time ago, isn't it? And that was, 
That was a business week. How, how did that? Still how did that make it's you? It's amazing to believe that I'm only 42 years old. I mean, I was 10 years old when I was doing That was in business week. That was in business. <laughs> okay, business. Quite a prodigy. A prodigy. I'm a prodigy, you know. And I remember yeah, prodigy. Yeah, way. absolutely. I remember. So the uh, so so when. It's, it sounds like Crazy Eddie got on your got on your radar pretty early on. What, no, it did. Was there? Anything I, let me disabuse you of that oh. notion. Crazy Eddie only got on my radar, as you as you as you put it, uh, in my dotage. This got on my radar uh, just within the past, uh, which for me is like a you know like a minute, uh, fifteen years. That Crazy mm. Eddie got on my so called radar. That's when I, I I mean I was aware that the company existed, and I was also aware of its travails uh mm-hmm. when they were occurring because who couldn't be aware of crazy eddie and who couldn't be aware of the travail uh but i only got interested in crazy eddie actually about 10 15 years ago um when i was like maintaining a, a web blog a blog that's where i i ran into uh, mm-hmm. caleb i believe I, I was writing about uh, overstock.com and the uh, absolute absolute craziness if you pardon the expression of the ceo and of their business methods and of the, the, the whole mess Overstock.com was, and and, and Sammy Antar, uh, and this was around, I would say, 20, uh, 2007 or 2000, yeah, I think it was 2007, I believe it was. It's in the book. It's in the, uh, I'd have to look it up. Uh, Sammy Antar posted a comment, which I turned into a blog post, in which he wrote a sarcastic letter to the CEO of Overstock, Patrick Byrne, who nowadays is known for his his sort of larger scale wackiness and, and his election conspiracies and so forth. But in those days, he was known mainly for for uh, being a crazy CEO. And Sam wrote this sarcastic uh, uh, email to uh, well, it was a sarcastic open letter to Patrick Byrne. And that's how I sort of got to know Sam. And over time, I got sort of interested in in his his history and on the history of Crazy Eddie. That was like around 2007, 2008. That's after I'd left Business Week and uh, you know, done, done going on to other things. So, but did you ever, did, I'm just curious about this. Did you ever buy anything from a crazy, crazy Eddie store? Did you like get a VCR uh, or a uh, stereo? Like, because it seems like, because I think in the book, like, which I really enjoyed, by the way, and, and the, in the, the book, the book makes it seem like because I was I was very young and I, I I grew up in the Midwest so I had no I I have no no sense of Crazy Eddie but it was really a phenomenon and it sounds and like when you describe yeah and you describe like the the grand openings of some of these new stores and like twenty thousand people show up like yeah. that's that, that's like, insane um, if pardon pardon pardon, pardon. it's not a pun but whatever it is. But so I'm just curious. So did so were, did you as a just as a regular consumer? Did you did you get caught up in the in the in the phenomenon that is Crazy Eddie? And it's like I need a VCR, so I'm going to Crazy Eddie. No, I never set foot in one of those stores. Is uh, that right? I dream of setting foot in a Crazy Eddie store. I mean, who would do this? I mean, I I, I was <laughs> repelled by the by the commercial because for part of the time I was in Connecticut, you know. Yep. But Crazy Eddie, no, I hated those commercials, and I unlike a lot of people. Even though when I hated the commercials, I did not patronize the store. I just ah. didn't go in. I went someplace else because I didn't trust Crazy Eddie as a consumer. It never dawned on me that there was all this absolute uh, horror show taking place behind the scenes. That never, never, never occurred to me. 
Right. So to just going back just a second to something that you mentioned and to give a little context to the listener. So Sammy Antar was the accountant, the CFO for Crazy Eddie. He got busted with everybody else. After all this stuff with Crazy Eddie goes down, you said he wrote a sarcastic letter to the CEO of Overstock. Was it like, hey, great earnings report. Looks like you're really doing great. How can I buy some shit? Was it... What what was the, what was the tone yeah. and how and how ballsy is that to be a fucking felon and calling somebody else out? Well, he you know he was a, he was an expert accountant you know so uh, his letter I I did uh, quote from it in, in the book I could read to it to you from but he, he his tone was very deadpan he says you know as a as a former felon and as the CFO of Crazy Eddie I admire the way you run your business it reminds me of where I was when I was young. <laughs> It was that kind of that like 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 that. And yeah, and he he was CFO of Crazy Eddie and he was the guy, he was the Joe Valachi of the of the Crazy Eddie crime family. He was a guy who blew the whistle uh. and uh, yeah, you know, even though the, the, the everything had collapsed by the time he became an informant, he was the one who threw all the bad guys in jail. Not just Eddie Antar, right. who's the CEO of Crazy Eddie, but other people. So, Caleb, are you good if we if we get into actually the Crazy Eddie story? Yeah, we, absolutely. absolutely. And I, so I, I kind of have a question. I want, so I'm, I'm curious about. So the Antar family, you know, you describe the 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 first part of the book is you go through a lot of the history of the Antar family and the history of they think the family is very important to the overall story. Like, I don't think you get a, I don't think the reader will, they won't have as good of an understanding of maybe the motives or the culture of, I think, uh, you know, these, the, the, the Syrian Jews that immigrated to the U S kind of the history of that kind of sets the stage for what crazy Eddie is to become. And, but one thing that I'm interested about, because you mentioned Joe Valachi and kind of the, and Sammy being kind of the Joe Valachi of this particular family it is important to know this is the book is retail gangster, but these particular gangsters, they, in, unless, unless you left it out of the book, there was no violence of any kind. Like these, these were just, they were streetwise guys, but they were business. They were business guys. Like they very much knew or understood that this was a way that they could make a lot of money and, but they, but they never resorted to violence. They never did those kinds of things that in terms of like organized crime, like people typically think of that people kind of associate with organized crime, but these guys, they never, they never, th that was a road they did not go down. No. Yeah. That's, that's absolutely correct. That's absolutely correct. Uh, and of course, people, people, I think have a fundamental misunderstanding of organized crime because, because generally the, the books and so forth emphasize the violence, but organized crime, yep. the essence of organized crime is making money. You know, mm. any way, any, any way. Mm. And as a matter of mm. fact, as far as, you know, you know, regular mafia type organized crime is concerned, uh, as you know, uh, one of the, one of the young guys who worked in Crazy Eddie went on to the high level position at the Bonanno crime family. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and in that, this guy, he was not a violent kid. He was a very smart kid. He was a very nice kid. And he went into, and I traced his career a little bit. When I found that when he went into the Bonanno crime family, he, 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 they never nailed him for anything violent. 
So even when he joined the mafia, this is a crazy Eddie guy. Even when he joined the mafia, even when he became the street boss of the Nano crime family, he still, although I'm sure he committed violence, I mean, of course, they still couldn't nail him for anything violent, you know? Right. So there's no violence even in the mafia subplot. In fact, there were two mafia subplots in this because right. Eddie used to buy from a numbers bank in the Bronx. And again, right. there was no violence there. So, but, but of course- mm -hmm. People, I think, tend to overemphasize the violent aspects. Well, maybe not overemphasize, but they tend to focus on the violent aspects of organized crime. I mean, um, it's not what that's not what organized crime is about. And and Eddie was a was an absolutely fantastic racketeer in his own way. I mean, he and he 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 did it just like the mob does. He's he 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 knew how to how to manipulate people, and he knew how to make money by cutting corners. And, you know, very much as the garment district, you know, the mob in the garment district would exploit uh, the way the garment district was was operated. You know, Eddie knew how to make money illegally by exploiting the weird characteristics of the electronics market. And that's how he, you know, that was sort of behind all this amazing marketing that was saturating the airways in the 1970s, yeah. 80s. This episode of Oh My Fraud is sponsored by LiveFlow. LiveFlow connects QuickBooks Online directly to Google Sheets and Excel, allowing you to have spreadsheets that automatically update with the most recent QuickBooks data. Hundreds of accountants, bookkeepers, and small businesses are using LiveFlow today to create automatically updating budgets versus actuals, dashboards, and consolidated reports. Yes, consolidated reports. You can connect one spreadsheet to multiple QuickBooks Online companies and see the numbers updated in real time. Because LiveFlow can be fully customized to create reports and dashboards, LiveFlow could also be used to surface possible fraud. For example, you could create a sheet that is a list report for invoices or checks and filter it for transactions over a certain amount. Then if any questionable transaction is entered into QuickBooks, it would automatically appear on the sheet. Or maybe you get really aggressive and create an entire dashboard that automatically surfaces transactions that are out of company norms. To learn more about using LiveFlow and how you can save 20% off your first three months, head over to ohmyfraud.promo slash LiveFlow. That is ohmyfraud.promo forward slash L-I-V-E-F-L-O-W. Stop manually updating your spreadsheets with LiveFlow. So one of the things that I love to do in cases like this when when analyzing these is I love to try to to try to differentiate like sleazy but legal mm -hmm. business versus illegal business. And in the book when you're outlining especially Crazy Eddie up to the point of the IPO uh, some of the things, the things that I, I mean, when I'm kind of and, and and tell me if I'm forgetting any of the uh, any of the pieces of the puzzle, but his initial his initial way of getting an edge on the market was really simple. It was just not remitting his full sales tax. So he was he pocketed a lot of yeah. sales tax. Obviously, that's Ooh, illegal. Man. You can't you can't do that. Like and that that no. was it. But then some of the other stuff that you talked about, bait and switch was one of the things where where they but but what's interesting, my understanding, and correct me if your understanding is wrong, uh, bait and switch is illegal, but it 
it has to be like egregious where you say, "Hey, we've got we've got this stereo for fifteen dollars, and they never had a stereo for fifteen dollars, never intended to have a, a stereo for fifteen dollars." You come in, and go, "Hey, where's the stereo for fifteen dollars?" And they go, "Oh, it, that, those sold out. Buy this instead." Is that is my understanding of bait of like the illegal aspect of bait and switch? Incorrect? No, bait and switch is actually defined pretty broadly. Uh, in the uh, certainly in the New Jersey and New York statutes, I didn't you know that all the other okay. statutes. In fact, they did nail them for bait and switch at one point in the late eighties, eighty seven. New York City did, and, okay. but didn't penalize them. You know, ordinarily, what bait and switch means is that you 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 market a certain uh, you're marketing something, and when you get there, you don't get it. You're switched away from it, and it doesn't matter whether it's higher price, lower price. In this instance, so it's, the statutes are very broadly. Defined. The question is, uh, you know, are, are they enforced? And against Crazy Eddie, they really were not. Okay. Uh, they committed bait and switch by switching customers, not to higher price products, because they didn't have that many of those in stock, although they had some. Uh, and they didn't make much money on the higher price products. They switched them to lower price products, where Eddie made a, a, a much higher profit. But that was, you know, again, you know, again that was against the law. That was against the law, but it was... Eh. It was uh, it was like the what was a sales practice? I, I forget exactly. It was not a yeah. criminal. I don't believe it was criminal. It was it was part of the statutes that the, the consumer protection statutes, which are you yeah. know not that consistently enforced. Believe me, in the first place, it's not, it's not right. really criminal. He did a lot of criminal stuff, but that was the bait and switch, yeah. which was the foundation yeah. of it. And that was not really criminal. Now, but it was really right. Okay, let's 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 go to another another tactic that they had. They'd come in, somebody'd come in, and they would they like the salespeople couldn't get them off of the the Sony that had just a you know tiny markup, and maybe the only money they were making was the sales tax they weren't remitting. But then they'd say, "Oh, but you're going to need some speakers. You're going to need some cables. Yeah. You're going to need this other stuff to go along with that, and all that stuff." They would sell at a huge price. I go, that's that's just upselling it at. Uh, gap, and that's not Ill, that's no. not illegal. It might be a it might be aggressive in your exploiting the consumer's laziness of going. I don't want to go to it. I'm yeah. here. They got it here. I don't want to make another. I don't want to stop at Walmart. So fine, give me that stuff. Right, right. That's not illegal. It might be aggressive, not, but not illegal. Not, yeah, no. I mean, the upselling was like one of the things that they that they emphasized. You know, because the chemicals and all this yeah. stuff are ridiculously overpriced. But no, that's not illegal. That's not even right. really unethical. You know. You just make a lot of money on it. That's yeah, that's, it, that, that's okay. Yeah. And then and then the the last thing uh, up until well sorry Caleb did you have something well about yeah so what I was going to say was like you you do a pretty good job talking about this in the book as it relates to the commercials right and yeah. and I I spent the last thirty minutes watching crazy old crazy Eddie commercials to prepare myself for this conversation <laughs> but but in those commercials and you mentioned it in the book and then I heard it in the commercials when I was listening to them. Jerry Carroll, the, the the shouting guy that everybody loves, he he says the words "Go to Crazy Eddie," right? And the whole and you talk about in the book is the whole idea behind their their marketing tactics or their advertising tactics was just to get the people in the store, and so that's yeah. why the bait and switch was the kind of thing. Oh, they'd advertise something, and somebody like I want that thing, then they'd get in the store and they don't have the thing. And so, but they're in the store. And so then, like you say, you sell them the pioneer or the sharp instead, you upsell them on all the, all the stuff. 
but also the subliminal nature of those commercials where it's just like go to crazy eddie shop around but then go to crazy eddie that really worked it really it it that that the psychology behind that seemed to be really really effective and then like you say there's nothing illegal about upselling but they're in the store and they need the stuff so mm-hmm. you know focus on focus on selling them all this other stuff while they're here yeah yeah sure i mean you know the whole idea was to get them in the store and uh the, the other retailers hated crazy eddie because uh he, their pitch was come to the store we will be just just shop around get the best price and crazy eddie will beat it and yep. that took all the credibility out of their pricing so uh, yeah if you did what they what they say yeah you'd, you'd get a you'd get a, a cheaper price no no question you, you know if you really held crazy eddie to it if you couldn't be switched away from what you wanted yeah, they'd they'd sell it to you. They'd show up. Yeah. yeah. So then the next the next ill the next practice that I the again coming up to the IPO to to their intentions to go public with Crazy Eddie I thought was was so interesting and so fascinating was the insurance fraud that they engaged in when but even that and it sounded like what they were doing is it's like okay here's some stuff that we know like even like you said about the bait and switch so if if we take the legality out of it it, even if what they were doing was horribly illegal with bait and switch there they knew and and you know and i know that that stuff's just not enforced so they're like good same with the sales tech stuff they know hey as as long as we're giving them something they're not going to come and you know put the screws on us to figure out if we're skimming sales tax but then the insurance fraud similar thing where they knew that people weren't enforcing it tell us it i'd rather you told it than i try to recount what i remember but the stuff where they they and what what they call it like spiking the claim what was the those particular so it was spiking yeah tell us about spiking the claim because i thought that was so so well, you got to keep in mind, first of all, this was taking place in New York City in the 1980s, late 1970s, when the city was was falling apart. You know, crime was everywhere. Street crime was everywhere. Burglaries were everywhere. So the storekeepers insured against this. They insured against burglaries. They insured against flooding. I and mean, if there was a burglary or if there was a flood, they would just simply put in a claim for stuff that was not stolen and that was not flooded and and when there was and when they put in a flood claim they would actually take merchandise from other stores that weren't selling and they would put it in the basement of the store where that was flooded and they would um and they would hose it down uh to make it seem like it was damaged it was damaged because as a matter of fact they they would then then usually the insurance companies, they didn't want these, these moldy boxes and anything. So when they would take these moldy boxes, they'd put them in a, in a, in a, in a, in a storehouse. And then the, when they had the next flood claim, they'd take out these moldy boxes again and put it back in the basement. they put in another, they'd recycle the same, the, the yeah. same um, boxes and, it, and, and the same claims. And yeah, I, I quote him an instance which took place in in the on in their store on Fordham Road in the Bronx. Now I you know that's my neighborhood. I know what a what a kind of yeah. neighborhood that was by the early eighties. It was ugh, late seventies, early eighties. It was it was it was really pretty da- pretty dangerous. And you know so they here they are. They're committing sort of this white collar crime in a in a neighborhood where it was which was dominated by blue collar crime. Okay. 
And it wasn't, it was, it, it, at the time there was arson in the Bronx. Half the Bronx was burning down. Even that, and this is something that he never did. He didn't burn down anything. He didn't, you know, he put in a fire claim. There was, right. no, he never committed arson. He never burglarized any of his own places. But you had this sort of the general atmosphere of lawlessness in New York City. And all Eddie, Eddie, you know, was expecting never to be prosecuted for any of this stuff. Insurance companies did generally not investigate and, and did not generally prosecute uh, suspected insurance fraud. And sure enough, he 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 got away with it. Yeah. He got right. So, and and with those, with the with the spiking of the claims, because like you said, he as far as as far as we know, he never lit anything on fire. He never. He never lit anything on fire. He never and he never like busted a pipe on his own store. It was more like here and and it's it's funny to me the flood stuff very close to home. My day job, I I help I'm I'm the CFO for a group of medical office buildings. So I help manage uh commercial real estate and floods are a real thing they happen to us every few years it's the worst that's the worst day of my year when we go in and there's been a flood so he would just wait for this stuff to yeah. occur when the universe says hey it's time for this building to flood but then what he'd do is he'd go oh and these toshibas aren't selling so they just like throw them in to the to the to the basement that's now a swimming pool going i guess and and the other thing is you said he would insure it not for wholesale but retail. for retail so basically every every toshiba he throws in to the flooded basement he's like well that's a sale and that's a sale and here's some other shit we can't sell so let's just throw it all in and hose it down and piss on it and spit on it you were saying i don't know if that was you know hyperbole no, from that's the, what they would the, do at least according to my, my <laughs> source in this um, and that uh, seems perfectly legitimate that they would do this. After all, if you're going to security, if you're going to commit insurance fraud, we'll do it right. And they would do it right. Like you know, it, you know, pipes always burst in the winter and in, in, in yeah. doors they yeah. always burst. So okay, let's make take advantage of it. That's what he thought. But yet at the same time, he had a certain sort of I wouldn't call it ethics, but there were certain limits, red lines that he would cross. He would never like you know break his own pipe. As I point out, he would never burglarize his own. So he would never burn down it. Right. Well, and to, and and again, to my mind, looking at all these cases over time, if you're going to be a smart fraudster, if you're going to be like a a successful mm. fraudster, you you're not. It, it's the whole what the the adage of you know pig, pigs get fat, hogs get mm. slaughtered. Where it's like don't don't go don't swing for the fences. Just do just do sure. enough to line your pockets without going crazy yes. and that's how you that's how you stay under the radar like kind of like what you're yeah. saying so i think that that was yeah like i said maybe not guided by some sort of moral compass that eddie had to not burn his own buildings down but might be maybe going that's how you go to jail this is how you just make some yeah. money yeah, so, he, he got away with the majority yeah. of the crimes that he committed even uh, the pretty serious ones that he committed overseas which we haven't gotten to yet no, he was yeah. in many respects, but he made certain significant errors as yeah. a fraud. Yeah. So, yeah. Gary, I think for me, the line in the book that sums up, I think, the entire Crazy Eddie story, and I don't know if you remember writing the sentence and you thought, oh, that's that's the good sentence. No, but for me, I, it, it jumped out. It jumped off the page of me, and it was it was a very short sentence, but it said, "The fraud came first. I don't and like. I'm like. That, but the fraud did come first, sure. The fraud came first, and that that and 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 I don't remember if that was, I don't remember exactly the context around it, but that's how Eddie felt about it. 
And so anytime they had to, and I think this was either in preparation for the IPO or shortly after the IPO, the, the pressure to see growth, they, they, the Antars were very, I guess, innovative. I don't know if innovative is quite the right word, but like they were, they were clever in terms of like, well, what can we do? We've, we're, we're running all these scams and everybody's on board. Everybody's on the team. And Eddie kind of had this way, you know, he's, he's this very kind of dynamic and charismatic figure that people wanted to please, that people wanted to work for. And if he said the fraud came first, then that's, and then people were on board, they did it. And so mm. I wonder, what do you think? It, it's kind of like, it's, it's kind of a surprising thing that that was, that was just the overall culture within Crazy Eddie is that we have to do these things in order to grow the company, to keep the, to keep it going. And I'm just, I'm just curious, is that, is like, is that how you see it? Did, was the fraud with the culture of, was it just simply a culture of fraud and that that's what kept it going? And do you think, is that something that you see today? Is are there, are there businesses today that kind of have a similar approach in your mind? Well, I think it was a culture of fraud at the highest levels. You know, Eddie, uh, you know, Eddie was very careful not to bring into frauds people he couldn't trust to keep their mouths mm. shut and to do what he wanted him to do. So it was, it was like, it was in some respects a little bit like Madoff with his what was it, the seventeenth floor or whatever it was that he made off compartmentalized the fraud. There was a certain area where the fraud was committed. You know, while it's true that there were things that were so nice taking place. You know, outside Eddie's uh, immediate circle of friends and or whatever. Uh, nevertheless, nevertheless, you know, at, at the highest levels where the accounting fraud, the big public company frauds were conducted, that was conducted in a very, a very limited fashion among people he could trust. People he could trust who did not necessarily always know that they were committing frauds, uh, and this was true in in some of the stuff they was doing in the warehouses, uh, where you know, I, I go into. Two particular individuals. One's one, one was honest. One was dishonest. There was one guy who participated in warranty frauds, where they were putting in claims for warranties that did not exist. And this guy was basically a crook, and he was on. And he, he, but even he didn't quite understand the the accounting uh, game that Eddie was playing in the warehouses. And then there was another guy who was really pretty honest, and he committed very much the same fraud in a different set of warehouses you know uh so i i would i would say that eddie eddie was constantly testing people to find out can he bring these people up in the company to work with him on the on on uh, on the frauds that he had had in mind uh he was always testing people and if you didn't pass the test then you didn't quite you you didn't get into that circle of of intimates yeah okay so let's let's move on because, like I said, the the stuff I, I talked about before in terms of the stuff that was legal, stuff that wasn't legal that that's not even the stuff that that Crazy Eddie's known for. So so walk me and the listener through like I, I'd say just big picture. They're they're coming up to the IPO. They, well, I guess there was a light bulb that came on with yeah. Sammy, the the CFO, and he was like, "Wait a second, this has all been great, and and we're doing fine, but the way for us to get like." rich rich is to go public with the company um but then he again he was he was a good accountant i think that's by all uh, uh, accounts 
he was he was good at that. Walk us through kind of I guess maybe the major beats in the story, just because some listeners have never probably never even heard of uh, Crazy Eddie. Yeah. So so yeah, just walk us through the the major beats of the story from from now. We're gonna get on the IPO. How they did that. What happened? What they had to do to to please the stock market, and then how it collapsed. If, sure. if you well, don't Eddie mind. and the company had been skimming cash. The company had been skimming cash and sending it mainly to Israel to a bank accounts in Israel. They've been skimming cash for a long time, and and cash skimming they called it nechti in uh, uh, in, the, in the among the Syrians called it nechti. Uh, skimming cash was just part of their business part of the business practices. Um, that they that the entire family has been doing for many years. Um, you know, you do that, you know, to say to cheat the tax man. So, Sammy Antar, who was uh, the first trained accountant in the family, he pointed out to them, "Hey, look, we want to go public at a certain point. Why don't we skim less and less cash from the company? Because the more the less you skim." the more your profits increase. We're decreasing our profits right now, so we pay less taxes. But if we if we cut down gradually on the amount of skim, it's going to make it seem as if our profits are really increasing. And that's exactly what they did. So when they went public in 1984, they looked, wow, this is a growth story. This is marvelous. And really, the main thing that was driving their profits was the fact that they were just skimming less. They just were manufacturing. Uh-huh. The profits. So that was the first. That was the first element that that brought them into the IPO. That hoodwinked Wall Street and all of Wall right. Street and all the uh, major investors. Uh, right. Which and I love that so much. Where it's like, well, here's this one fraud we've been doing, but if we slowly wean ourselves off of that fraud, that's going to help us do this way more profitable. <laughs> that's going to enable this much bigger mm-hmm. fraud. Just. I mean that that's sort of the dumb luck falling, you know, ass over elbow into into a a good fraud scheme that again, we see it fairly common in the stuff that we look at. So, yeah, continue. I I love this yeah, stuff. Well, so you much. know, I mean, look, it made more sense to you know, this to to skim less. Okay, you'll be paying more in taxes. But he was saying, look, huh. it's best to overpay in taxes than under it's it, right. you actually do better overpaying in taxes and overstating your profits. <laughs> Because the stock market is going to love this, and you're going to be the biggest stockholder, right? So yeah. you're going to be able to cash in your stock and make a fortune, you know. And he was right; he was 100 yeah. yeah. right. So after they went public, because of this phony mechanism that they had of skimming less, it occurred to them, well, you know, we got to keep on committing fraud because, you know, honestly, you know, if we if the truth comes out, you know, because we're really not that profitable, and if, if you know, and we have to maintain a facade <laughs> of fraud because if we don't maintain this facade of fraud, we're going to have a facade of failure. And we've got problems. <laughs> right. So they started to boost right. their 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 profits by boosting the contents of their warehouses, by boosting their inventories. And, you know, the majority of of, of people, uh, I think, uh, are not acquainted with accounting and do not realize that the more your inventory, the higher your inventory, the higher your profits. It's just the way profits are calculated. You know, you guys know, well, the majority of people don't know this. So he he then had a scheme to boost the the, the contents of the, of the warehouses, which he conducted, which he and Sam and the other guys conducted in very crude ways, but well, they worked very well. They boosted the, the value of the, um, of, 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 and they just kept on doing this and they kept on, uh, you know, well, well, that started to, they, that was getting to be a difficult fraud to carry out. So they, they thought of other ways of mm-hmm. doing it. You know, they, they had cooperative 
wholesalers, you know, buying mm-hmm. stuff from them so that they could boost. They actually sold to wholesalers to to increase their to increase their 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 profits because they had they played games with the dates of the they played games with the dates of the um, dates of the invoices so that uh, they would it would increase their profits but it would increase it in, in a sort of in a mechanism that made it possible for them to 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 pinpoint which financial statement is going to be inflated so as to rip off right which buyers of which stock they're issuing you know they they kept on you yeah. know figuring out new and improved ways of committing fraud and you know every time it became this big headache you know because you know they, they they're <laughs> fraud after yeah. fraud after fraud and they just you know, it was just like this big balloon they were blowing up and it was it yeah. was going to burst and it burst at a certain point because because and this is this is the irony here because uh, after a while they couldn't really they couldn't really sustain the fraud and 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 it's right. their stock price started to decline the stock price first climbed a huge percent i think it was like 1800 percent or something like that mm-hmm. uh their stock climbed up oh. through 1987 and then it started to collapse and went down so when it went when the stock started to collapse they didn't want this but they they started to get a reputation as a wonderful takeover target. This mm-hmm. has got to be undervalued. I mean, look how they're declining. <laughs> they're, yeah. This is a great company. Uh, we got to buy that. So they started to attract <laughs> takeover interest. They don't want to be taken over. If you're committing fraud, you don't want to be taken over. No. no. Yeah, because they'll yeah they'll they'll expose all of your shenanigans. The the new the and new team yeah, for that's sure. Exactly what that. Yeah. And again, Caleb, this is the this is the story we hear so often, yeah. where it's like, ah, this is easy money, and then you go, oh, the next thing you know, it's you're juggling you're juggling uh, uh, chainsaws, and you can never stop juggling ca- right. chainsaws, and that's that's it's, your it's, life. It's just way too much work. So, Gary, I want to ask you a little bit about Sammy because I think mm. in the book. The dynamic between Eddie and Sammy is very interesting. Oh, yeah. Um, and I think, because it, it seems to me, and I've heard other people say this, but like, it seems to me like Eddie, maybe a sociopath, maybe not. I'm just an arm care. I'm just an armchair psychologist. So who's to say? But he certainly, he certainly didn't care about hurting people like while no, he no. was in it. Whereas I think one, one of the things that one, I think one of the, one of the, so you open the book with this, this scene where Sammy and a couple of other of the executives are going to see this, this, uh, real rich guy. His name is Milton, Milton Petrie. Milton Petrie. And so this is, this is at the stage where the, you know, crazy Eddie is potentially a takeover target and they go to this, they, they meet Petrie at a, at a, at a club and, and they're talking about it. And and Sammy goes into the meeting, and you, and you get in this and you, this scene is later in the book, but they're 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 there and they're having the conversation, and in the conversation, it dawns on Sammy that this guy Petri is is a is a really good guy. He 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 was a great yeah. business person. He made a he made a huge fortune, and then that you have these stories in there about how he would read a story about someone who was down on their luck in the newspaper, and he would find the person, and he would take care of them in some way, pay their hospital bills or, or pay for their kids' education or whatever it was. This was the kind of this guy, this, who this Milton, uh, Petri was. And Sammy is sitting there and he's having this conversation and the idea that they were going to con this guy into buying the company 
made made Sammy feel queasy. And it, it yeah. that's when it dawned on me that like Sammy, who I've known, you know, as long as I've known you, Gary, about 15 years, Sammy has yeah. this way of like, get, he wants you to feel like that he's still the bad guy and that he's always a bad guy and that he's a bad guy, but he just got caught. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think there are yeah. moments in the book where he, he completely sheds that. And this was one of those scenes where he's like, this guy is a good guy. He helps regular people. He made a fortune. He's giving the money away. I can't, he's like, it, 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 Sammy didn't do this deal, at least in part, I think, because he did not want to con this guy. And I just wonder, yeah. like, is Sammy, how much, like, and that's the thing I can't figure out about Sammy is like, how much of it is him, how much of that Sammy, the, the, the good, bad Sammy, whatever it is, like how much of that yeah. was him trying to be, you know, it, he wanted to please Eddie. Right. But there was still a voice inside him and said, this is wrong. And so I just wonder like, is that the conflict within him? And is that the biggest difference between him and Eddie? Well, yeah, I think you're, you're raising a very good point. You know, I mean, I think there was a bit of a conflict between him and you see that you see this coming out uh, with Petri, you know, he didn't want to know this guy's, this is, this guy's, this is a nice guy. Do I really want to take over this guy? But you have to remember also that after that incident, he continued to do things that really weren't very nice. You know, he was shredding mm-hmm. documents, he was committing major crimes and whatever. <clears throat> I think that over time, after he was caught, um, and after he started to get into religion somewhat, you know, mm-hmm. uh, Judaism became religious, he started to study these things. I think he, he began to develop a certain amount of real uh, remorse which I think is what you're seeing uh, nowadays. We're seeing over the past 15, 20, well, actually over the past 30 years, you know, since he, uh, you know, since he, uh, you know, testified against Eddie in, in court. Um, but I think, yeah, you're right. I mean, the thing about Eddie that, that I, I think distinguishes him from, uh, from Sam and from distinguishes him from the majority of the people, uh, but really sets him, but is that he, he just simply had no conscience. He just didn't mm-hmm. care. He'd lie to everyone, he'd steal from everyone, and it was as if the closer you were to him, the more likely you were that either either he would either turn you into a victim or he would turn you into a perpetrator. Um and that's and that's and that's Eddie that's you were Eddie. talking about. No, that's yeah. Sam. Eddie. That's Eddie. Eddie. Yeah. Um no, I think yeah. Eddie sort of stands out among the, you know, uh, uh I would say among all the other characters in, in the book. Um and also, he yeah, he had such a magnetic personality. My God, uh, right. to this day, people just adore the guy. You know, former mm-hmm. salesmen, former uh, employees, they they just love him. They just love the yeah. guy. To this day, there was there there was there yeah. was one line in the book. I one of my other favorite lines was you said, and I don't remember again. I don't remember the context, but the context doesn't really matter because the sentence was, Eddie was not a logical and reasonable person. <laughs> and I'm like. Yeah, well, he, I mean, he just wasn't. And so, like you say, he 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 didn't care about who he lied to. He didn't care about no. who he cheated. Uh, and and that he maintained that pretty much until probably, yeah. I don't know, even 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 until he in like the, the stories you kind of um, when he eventually is in prison and mm-hmm. he's given these jailhouse interviews, he's playing the victim in all those interviews. Like he's yeah. saying, it's like, mm-hmm. look at me what i have done i've done nothing wrong and like and he just he maintained it even after 
it was even after the jig was up. Yeah, he maintained it until he pleaded guilty, and then he stopped giving interviews. You know, that was right. that was it. But his his yeah, uh, I, I think his his character flaws is what eventually did him in. You know, his failure to you know his, his his the fact that he didn't think logically, the fact that he didn't think of the consequences of what he was doing. Eventually, that's what destroyed him. The way he treated Sam Eantar, if he had. If he had paid for the guy's legal bills, you know, and then when, mm. when, you know, would say, instead of hanging, when you hang out the people closest to you to hang them out to dry, like your ex wife, you know, the way he was cheating her, he turned her into an enemy. He turned the people closest to him into an enemy out of sheer vindictiveness and spite. And that ultimately, that, that, that is one of the major factors that brought him down eventually. You know, he just screwed over people for no reason and usually got away with it. But then he stopped getting away with it. What can what would you pinpoint as the? I mean, because because again, we're talking about he's got he's got you know different different kinds of financial statement fraud that have been pulled into play mm-hmm. to to try to please Wall Street. What what's the? I mean, do you feel like you can identify? Was was it just a death by a million cuts? Or can you identify one thing that was like this was the death blow for? Crazy Eddie. Well, the death blow for Crazy Eddie came in a thousand cuts. Kind of, it was just an accumulation of various frauds that they could not be sustained. Yeah. So, when the company was finally taken over in a sort of hostile takeover, it, it, it was it was just impo- It was it was it was natural. This was right around the time of the uh, nineteen eighty seven crash. As a matter of fact, just mm-hmm. by coincidence, right around that time, mm-hmm. uh, Crazy Eddie was taken over, and they find this complete shambles. You know, they they find that their warehouse warehouses have been ridiculously inflated, and they find that they go into mm-hmm. the CFO's office. Uh, the new CFO goes into the office. He finds no files. Where are the files? They've all been shredded. <laughs> they see this is this is oh god, what did I hear? Oh no, what did we buy here? So <laughs> that was the end of it. But before that happened. Before that happened, the, the 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 fraud started to crumble, and it was when the fraud started to crumble, which I would say would have been around nineteen, oh, early nineteen eighty six, eighty five, right around the mid eighties. That's when that's when things started really started falling apart. And then Eddie started putting his assets overseas. He started to put his money in Israel because he he was under the false impression. Well, you know, if I put my money in Israel, particularly if I do it through some you know, through some Panamanian account, they'll never find it. And if they, and, and, and I, that's a refuge for me, because after all, I'm Jewish. I, I may not be very religious, but I can immigrate there. Yeah, and right. they'll, they can't touch me. That was sort of what I think what was going through his mind. Because that's exactly what he did. You know, he put his money, he put all his money, majority of his money in Israel and in Switzerland. He said, well, you know, come on now. I mean, I've seen movies about this. Obviously, they can't touch this, you know. I've, I've seen the James Bond movie. It's impossible to penetrate these banks. <laughs> and he was wrong. Yeah, the Swiss people cooperated. The Israelis wanted to get rid of him. When he finally fled to Israel under a phony name, he made he became citizen under his real name. Okay, he can do that. And then under his phony name. He, he didn't think like a logical person. You can't do that. The Israelis aren't going to like that. Mm-hmm. No, they're not going to like that because the Arab terrorists can do that too. You know, they you're, they, yep. had, they were, they yeah. were going to, you know, hang this guy. Had they not uh, finally gotten gotten him out of that country, I, I don't think the Israelis would have treated him very gently. But you know, he, he just couldn't think through think things through. 
I, I, I put it as he was a very poor chess player. He couldn't think one or two moves ahead. Mm. He didn't he didn't quite grasp the consequences of what he was doing. And that's ultimately what, right. what, what got what ended him. And he ran his his company, even when it was a very big company, like it was a little a little uh, shop on 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 Fourteenth Street or Times Square. He his his methods were were, were crude, I, I I think. And also he was um, he was a bit of a micromanager, though. See, that's the thing about Eddie. Oh. Eddie. Uh, okay. he, he micromanaged. He drove his ad guy, his 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 advertising guy, a guy named Larry Weiss. No relation. No relation. The guy who brought in Jerry Carroll. <laughs> not, those commercials. No, not, no, 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 Weiss. That's not your no, uncle, Larry. No, no, no. <laughs> but he brought in this guy to be. He brought in this guy to do the advertising, and and he and in fact, Larry Weiss, the guy of Tampa, he he actually brought in Jerry Carroll uh mm-hmm. to do the advertising for, uh, for crazy eddie but uh and he was always running the ads and uh, they were they seemed to they were pretty successful and eddie was driving him nuts by you know he had to read all the commercials and there were a lot of commercials he had to read all the commercials he had a he had a he micromanaged every little aspect of kind now eventually eventually he you know he kind of let go of that but even so, up until the very end, he kept a very, well, particularly on the on what mattered to him, which was the stock price, which was the fraud. Mm-hmm. Particularly on that, he was a real hands-on manager on that. Oh no, he didn't. He didn't delegate any of this. And then, but what mattered to him on the fraud, he did not delegate. He handled it personally. So he, for instance, he hired personally a particular investor relations guy. He hired that guy personally. He 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 called him constantly. What is the stock price? What's it today? What's the volume? What's the you know, there were no uh, there was no internet. You had to call people and find out. <laughs> and it, it, anything relating to the fraud, he handled personally. He handled it all. Yeah. Gotcha. Did you, Caleb? You you had an interesting you had an interesting take on the on the. Uh, Wall Street PR guy, or, or at least a kind of a, a question oh. relating to to how how things fell yeah, apart there. One of the thing, and this is kind of just this is a small thing, but I, I but it also jumped out at me. So the the investor relations guy that you mentioned, his name was Ed. Uh, I think it's pronounced Colleton. Colleton, yeah, Colleton. Yep. At one point, Sammy fired him, and Colleton yeah. was pretty. So <laughs> I think in the but but but. Part of the reason Crazy Eddie was so successful immediately after the IPO was of the work and, that Colleton did because he was so well connected on the street, you know, knew who to talk to, knew how to hype the absolutely. stock. I thought it was really interesting because Sammy, Sammy, when so when he gets fired, Sammy fires him eventually. And if I remember right, he said Sammy, <laughs> Sammy was tired of his picky questions and. You talk yeah, about, you know, not being a good <laughs> chess like player. Right. And, and, yeah, that, and that's what I wondered is, is did like Sammy it. just not like him? Because it seems like they owe this guy a lot of the reasons for their success. And Sammy's just like, oh, fuck that. I don't like this guy. He's out. <laughs> that's basically it. Yeah, that's basically it. I mean, Eddie, <laughs> Eddie Sammy was, was pretty new at the job. And he, you know, you know, he, he, it's, it's question, it was a questionable call when he fired Ed right. Carlton. Alden Carlton. Right. But he didn't like Carlton. 
I, I mean, he just didn't, he just, because he, you know, he thought, you know, I, I sort of allude to this in a very gentle fashion, but, you know, Eddie, Sam is a very, very neat guy and he's very, you mm. know, something of a neat freak, you know, very, and Carlton was kind of slovenly and he was also a drunk, you know, uh, uh, so he just was personal, you know, and it was gotcha. one of those things where you shouldn't buy it, he buys them before Christmas in the usual way nowadays. <laughs> Uh, right. <laughs> he, he shouldn't have fired the guy. He was doing a great job, but he didn't he like him, so he fired him. And uh, you're absolutely right. It's an excellent point. Carlton, who was a legit, totally legit um, PR guy, uh, investor relations guy, he did a wonderful job, uh, yeah. you know, as the you know, shilling for Eddie. He did just, yeah. he's an example of the legitimate people who Eddie was able to con into, into doing his dirty work. But that's, but again, that's, I to me that doesn't make a to me it makes perfect sense that Sammy'd want him out, especially if he was a if he was a legit above board Man. guy who's good at what he does. Like you said, it's picky questions because you're going. I need somebody who's just going to be who's just going to go. Hey, great financial Man. statements, awesome. No follow up questions, and that and this sounds like this guy wasn't that because he was good at what he did. Is that is that incorrect? Well, or? I, I the sense I I, I got, uh, you know, I, the. the the, my, my my understanding of the situation is that uh, he he was personal. He, he just didn't like it. You know, he was asking picky oh. questions. True, okay. but uh, he was just impatient with him, and okay. and he was yeah. stupid. Yeah. You know, I, 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 my opinion, uh, why would you fire? Why would you fire someone who's doing such a wonderful job? Now they hire, they went up hiring another legitimate company, Kext, after that. But Carlton was really doing a fine job. You know, yeah. but uh, you're right. Yeah. You, know, you you have a, yeah. a point there. You know, maybe the, uh, the some of his questions uh, dug into the uh, nitty and gritty. But but the way Sam put it, uh, if I recall correctly, I believe he was his his feeling was that the questions were stupid. Now there was that mm. they weren't like incisive questions that were going to find the fraud, but just some stupid questions no. uh, that you should not that okay. you would not expect okay. from a guy of Carlton's experience. But I, I think it was mainly okay. it was mainly he just didn't like him. He, you know, he's drunk. He didn't like him. He, <laughs> you know, one thing one thing that uh, that I'm interested in too. Where where were the auditors in all this this situation? Because because if you've got if you're you know time, when you're when you're selling back to wholesalers, that's a red flag. When you're tr when you're timing invoices to just barely meet, you know, Wall Street's expectation, that's a red flag. Your you know, inventory stuff, they they're supposed to check that and I know there's sneaky ways to get around that. But uh, I mean, do you feel like the auditors to I guess the question is to what extent do you feel like the auditors are to blame with this going on to the extent that it did? Well, I would say that the auditors, you have to realize that the auditors were never successfully sued. I don't get into the litigation. I could would have had to have written a book of the same length to get into the litigation that followed at Crazy Eddie's demise. The auditors were sued by everybody, and the uh, and the auditors sued in return. And there was, the auditors were never successfully sued over this. And, you know, there was never any real finding of fault that the auditors had done some terrible job. You know, I know what Sammy believes they did a crappy job. Mm -hmm. uh, but nevertheless, that's not the judgment of the, the legal profession and of the law and the courts. You know, they they, they never really nailed uh, the uh, auditors. The auditors sort of did a crummy job because a crummy job is called for, you know, by the uh, by the standards of the auditing business. You know, I mean, for for, for example, when they were bringing the, the company public, you know, you send over Oppenheimer and Company. 
uh, there were a couple of bright young auditors. Well, actually, they were not auditors per se, but they were like due diligence guys. You know, yep. it's the same with the auditor. You know, they're not these due, dil- due diligence guys who are really bright. Uh, Ivy League, you know, real sharp characters. And they, you know, they came to this company that's run by some guys from guys from Brooklyn, and you know, everybody's related to one another, and they've got all these interconnect connections. So they they did the did the best they could, really, under the circumstances. But the fraud, uh, that is to say, the major fraud that was taking place at that time was this was 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 the uh, reduction in the in the skim. You know, to enhance the profits, and there was really no practical way they could have they could have determined that. When somebody's lying to you to your face, you know, if I say to you, I say to your face, you know, do you realize that there's lava flowing outside? And if I put my hand, but you know, if someone lies to you in a really, really big way, and, and there's not necessarily any way uh, that you're going to be able to discover that uh, if you don't have the tools or the access uh, to their, in this case, to their airline records that they're flying to Israel to dump, you know, dumping less. Um, the auditors yeah. over time, uh, they failed to discover the main problem with the auditors was that they failed to properly, they, they failed to detect the blatant fraud that was taking place in the warehouses. And, yeah. you know, they were supposed to conduct test audits of the, uh, of the contents of the warehouse. And the, and yeah. Sam uh, was able to find the other people. Sam and and, and the other people uh, simply were able to figure out what what they were test auditing. In one instance, you know, they kept their work in a in a locked box, and the key to the locked box of the auditors was kept in a little a little box of paper clips. That was noticed. So they just went to that box uh-huh. of paper clips. They took the key. They unlocked it. They said, oh, so this is what they were. They're conducting the test audits. Oh, I see. Well, we'll be, we'll, we'll be careful with those. So, you know, yeah. yeah, they conducted tests. They adhered to generally accepted auditing practices or whatever the hell it was. Mm-hmm. And they still didn't find the, the right. audit, audit. So it, it was like okay. a structural issue, I would say. It's a question of, you know, they're not really... Uh, this is not like you're 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 sending Elliot Ness to the to the warehouse to really <laughs> find out with, with assuming that everybody's doing doing is a hook. Assuming that and really now, but right. no, they assume that these are legit people. And if there's a if there's a problem, yeah. it's just a mistake, you know. Oh, come on, you know, and right. that's what happened when they right. when they found stuff that was kind of crummy. You know, like some of the some of the numbers were really off. I mean, they just assumed it was a mistake. These legitimate people. Sort of that, that, that was that was right. that was endemic to to auditing at that time and probably today. Probably, even though uh, as CPAs we have a an ethical standard to to uh, prof- it's called professional skepticism, which is the exact opposite of what you just <laughs> described. Where it's like yeah. you gotta go. These guys are fucking. The assumption needs to be they're fucking with us. So let's uh, let's go in with that mindset. But you're right that that's not what really happens not, in real not life. Really. But, not but the, certainly not at that time. Uh, certainly. Yeah. So um. So it's interesting too what you said. Where you're saying that now Sammy is is uh saying that the auditors did a shitty job was he like going these guys suck so bad they couldn't even find my my uh you know hair-brained fraud what what's his what's his approach on the well auditors? i, I you'd have to 
talked to Sammy to get his his first hand take on auditors. He, had a, he has uh, many many times written on his on his website whitecollarfraud.com. I should you know, tell you where to find it. Uh, he is constantly yeah. uh, pounded away at auditors and at the accounting profession. Um, that's one of the themes of his writings, you know, and of the speeches that he, you know, gives around the country and whatever that, you know, that, that the auditors does, they just do a crappy job and, and why they do a crappy mm -hmm. job. And this is what they did at Crazy Eddie. And so that's a lot of what he's been okay. doing since the Crazy okay. Eddie fraud collapses, you know, is, 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 is doing that. Gary, yeah. congrats on the book. Um, Thank you. Should read it. Everybody should read it. It's a great book. It's a, it's a great read. It's a great read. It's I wonderful. I remember when I first came across your blog and, um, and I remember reading your early stuff, but it had been a while. I hadn't read, I, I'm sorry to say, I haven't read any of your other books, but <clears throat> you, you do have a, you have a great style. I, I think, uh, the, the, it's a very enjoyable read and especially for people, uh, who are numbers inclined, they'll, they'll really enjoy it. Um, but I'm, I'm, my last question is what's, what's going on today? that feels crazy Eddie-esque to you? Is there anything out there where you're like, hmm, I, that's, and, and, and it can be in any aspect. Maybe it's the familial aspect. Maybe it's the business kind of the, kind of the, the, the attitude about, uh, about business. I'm, I'm just curious if anything uh, feels familiar in this day and age. Well, I hesitate to get too specific because I really don't feel like, Defending myself in any sort of libel suit. Of course, you know, I, of course. You know, I really am not, <laughs> I'm not into that anymore. That I uh, just say Elon, just say Elon Musk, and we'll end the. We'll yeah, end and, uh, yeah. You know, I'd be like, hey, you see a lot of bubbles out there. You see a lot of mem meme. Is it about mem or meme? Memes. Meme. I didn't even know. How yeah. To it. You know, a lot of meme <laughs> stocks, which you know, reek, reek of fraud. Uh, they may not be, they may not be, but they reek that there's something bad going on here. But you know, the thing with these companies, the things with these things, you know, with these meme stocks is unless you really do the deep dive and unless you get an insider to tell you what's really going on, you know, you, you, you can't really find out your sure, sure much can be discovered through, you know, careful reading of financial statements. And of course, of course. But to really know who's doing what, to whom, and what's really happening, you need insight. You need whistleblowers. You need insiders, and and mm. that's what you, that's why you know you. That's why I somewhat hesitate to you know. I can I can tell you what the odor is. I can't tell you what's causing the odor. You know, with a lot of these, you know, that'll come out. You know, that might come out in ten, fifteen years after their indictments and and so forth. And then and then after the indictments, there will be. The um, I use the term whistleblowers. Uh, the term is rat. You know, you will get informants. And then you'll know. Then you'll find it. Ask me in twenty years. All right, I'm alive. Which, uh, uh, well, hopefully we talk. <laughs> hopefully we talk again before hopefully. that. But yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much for your time. Uh, amazing, amazing book. Right. I yeah. The this is this is definitely a, you nailed. You nailed it! Great true crime story. I love all the digging into the details and the, the you know, the the periphery of the of the crime. It was it was fantastic. It, wonderful, wonderful book. So thank thank you for for writing it. Thank you for having. Me.
Okay, there you have it. Um, so, Greg, did we learn anything? Absolutely, we learned stuff. A lot of, of things from the past have been reinforced. One of the things was that I can read about a third of a book and still come off like I read the whole damn thing. So that I still got it, baby. Well done. Uh, but, well done. But there's all... They, thank you. Uh, but also, a lot of usual stuff that we've talked about before reinforced. Auditors are bad at catching fraud. Yep. Most frauds are unsustainable in the long run. Yep. Uh, committing fraud is, is not easy money. A lot of times, you're actually working harder for the stolen money than you would have had to work for honest money. Yep. Um, I, let me ask you about that. Let me ask you about that. Yeah. So the Crazy yeah. Eddie story is interesting because I, almost, I don't know if you got this sense, Greg, but... Uh, you know, it, it it eventually crushed him. It it crushed it crushed Sammy more than anybody. I think that was my takeaway. Yeah, like Eddie would have gone on forever. I feel like you pointed out. Like eventually, they just got greedy. You know, the IPO was like yeah. the IPO was like the big grab. Right? It they could have they yeah uh, they could have they could have kept going with doing skimming the sales tax and doing insurance fraud and and warranty fraud and they probably could have done that forever i mean maybe not forever eventually yeah eventually the warranty frauds they i think one of the one of the manufacturers complained mm. about the warranty fraud yeah but, um but you know but they gary wrote got, the i don't book think about that would shut them down well no i don't know i mean war it's so funny you read the book and you know gary kind of, the way he explains it it's like Warranty fraud is just something that just happens so frequently that the manufacturers yeah. <laughs> are just like, right. there's nothing they can do about it, right? So they, right, they right. may have been able to... But, but, and that and that's why, that's why I think that stuff is sustainable. Yeah. Because even if you get caught, you're not, not going to burn alive because of it. You'll just right. get... It'll be a slap on the wrist or be like, hey, you guys knock that off. Kind of thing, or a fine, or something like that, or you know, maybe maybe a tiny, but it's not going to collapse your whole organization. So I, so I think that stuff was that stuff was sustainable. But yeah, like you said, and even Gary in his book, he's like, it it sounded like Sammy after getting his CPA license and and learning all this stuff about about accounting, where he goes, hey guys, this this the the scams that we got going down are fine mm-hmm. but they're not but here's where the here's where the golden egg is so they went after the golden the golden egg the golden goose and they ended up uh failing in that whole thing <laughs> yeah. so yeah yeah, yeah. it's it's it, it's the greed the greed, well which is always weird where it's like fraudsters get caught because of greed and it's like yeah the whole th- yeah th- what el- that's the only thing motivating them is greed right. so that's a necessary component so i always think it's funny when it's like if these people lying and cheating and stealing hadn't gotten greedy and it's like they were from the be- beginning <laughs> if but- they had only had just a little bit of self-control right if it was you know moderation in all things including your greed i guess but but let me tell you this though yeah to switch gears just slightly shift away one of the biggest things i learned shift away one of the biggest learning lessons i had from doing this podcast was i learned that it's entirely possible to a hundred percent jinx yourself we we recorded this episode on Friday, okay. and during the episode that you just listened to, you'll remember that I talked about m- how my day job is I'm part of a building management team for commercial medical office space, and we were talking about the insurance flood, fraud and the floods that happen. I go, yeah, that's just something that happens in buildings. I said that on this podcast on Friday, Saturday morning, 
7.30 a.m. I got a call from my maintenance manager say we have a flood at the building. It was massive. No. It took out three floors of office spaces. It's uh, We're guessing... We're guessing that the the damage is around two hundred thousand dollars worth of wow. damage, but it could be a half a million dollars worth of damage. It was. We've got three doctors' offices that are completely. Well, they they their offices are a loss. We had to, fortunately we had some empty space in the building we could move them to temporarily, but it's it's nuts. And that happened the day after we recorded this damn podcast. So amazing! It's the curse of Crazy Eddie. He died in 2016, but he, well, either he's haunting me from beyond the grave or he was like, hey, I'm giving you a wonderful opportunity to, to, uh, to, to inflate your yeah. insurance claim. Yeah. So I if just you're, gave you the master class. So if you're Greg's insurance adjuster, make sure that you're taking notes. On- <laughs> right. Right. That's right, Seth McClure. You need to you need to listen if you're listening All to state. this podcast. All double state check. claims adjuster. Right. Exactly. Oh man. <laughs> Insane. Insane. All right. Well, Gary's book again is Retail Gangster, the insane real uh real life story of Crazy Eddie from Hatchet Books. Uh again, wherever you get your books, go out and get it. It's a it's a it's a great read. And that's it for this episode. So remember, if you're weaning off of a fraud, try not to wean on to another fraud. And also remember, insurance fraud is fine, but the real money is in fraudulent IPOs. If you want to drop us a line, send us an email at ohmyfraud at earmarkcpe.com. And Caleb, where can people find you out there in the ether? I'm on Twitter at CNewquist and LinkedIn full name backslash Caleb Newquist. Greg, where are you? I am uh, also Twitter at Greg Kite and I'm on LinkedIn, uh, just the backslash Greg Kite. Also, if you, uh, since my last name is spelled incorrectly, just Google that and you can find pretty much anything you need to know or want to find about me. Oh, My Fraud is written by Caleb Newquist and Greg Kite. Our producer is Zach Frank. If you like the show, leave us a review or share it with a friend. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And for the accountants out there, CPAs, CMAs, CFMs, if you listen to the podcast on Earmark, you can earn free CPE. Insane. Join us next time for more avarice, swindlers, and scams from more stories that will make you say, oh, my, oh, my fraud. Our frauds are insane. Crazy Eddie, his prices are insane.